You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was Being Human in a Fragmenting World. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Mary Frances Giles. Mary Frances is one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch. This lecture is called Moving Out and Moving On, Why It's Important to Run Away from Home. Welcome to the Nashville Libri Conference. My name is Mary Frances Giles, and I, yeah, I'm a worker, a Libri worker. Um, I've been at the Southboro branch outside of Boston for a little over nine years. Um, I'm a Tennessee native. I grew up in Chattanooga, so it's really fun to come back. It's weird, surreal, weird, but really fun to be back here. So, so today I am talking about why it's important to move away from home. Um, and I'm looking at you guys and making some guesses <laughs> about um, where you are in life and, um, and why you might have chosen this talk. So hopefully uh, what I shared today will be helpful to you in some way. And um, we, again, the workshops are a little tighter, but um, I'm going to do my best to make sure we have at least 15 minutes, if not more, um, to just have discussion if people want to. This is one of those talks that when I give it, people usually push back a little bit, and that's totally fine, too. So anyway, um, so you don't have to look very far these days um, to find an article or a story about delayed adolescence or um, adult children who just can't seem to move out of their parents' basements. Um, The reason that I decided to speak about this topic originally, this is a talk that I did several years ago at our branch of Liberty, and I've done it a couple times since then, um, is that a trend that we're seeing more and more in the the students that come through Liberty um, is that we have young adults who are still living at home, some of whom have for a long period of time. Um, and they just can't quite seem to make the break. And that kind of factor is becoming more and more relevant kind of in who they are and how they view themselves and their identity and their lives and their faith. Um, and it's so this talk is, I wrote this talk um, initially thinking about young adults in mind as the audience. But I always end up with a handful of parents, too. So this is kind of, hopefully I can, I'm speaking to both, both sides of that. Um, I do want to just clarify that when I use the term adult um, in this lecture, I'm, ret- I'm referring to people who are kind of 22 years of age and older. So past the kind of average age of college, undergrad, education, um, at least in the U.S., um, even though 18 is the legal age of adulthood, um, that window from 18 to 22 is really a critical season of transition and of kind of a gradual um, or growing independence, whether that's via gap years or college or kind of people who come out of high school and do first jobs. Um, so I'm really, I'm really kind of starting with this kind of jumping past that stage a little bit and people kind of who are into their 20s is who I'm referring to in my mind. Um, 
Young adults today have more choices available to them than any other generation before them. Dick referenced this this morning. Um, And that is across all areas of life, choices around vocation, um, marriage partners or not, uh, geography. And this can lead to a real state of paralysis for people who are no longer children, but who are unable um, to kind of make the big choices in the big leap to move into the world of adulthood. Um, In many ways, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction from previous generations. Um, The standard practice with baby boomers in the 60s and the 70s was was for children to move out of the house at 18, um, and for the most part, to be independent from their parents by the time they're 22. But now, the current generation, um, many adults in their 20s and 30s are still living at home with their parents, or in their 20s and 30s are still living at home um, with their parents and relying on their parents for at least some measure of financial and emotional support. So at the very minimum, housing um, as the parents are providing in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so now we have an entire generation that is extending adolescence and or delaying adulthood significantly when compared to generations in the past. Um, much of the research considers delayed adolescence extending up into age 30, um, but we know that that can go even further than that. Um, When I was first writing this lecture, I um, was thinking a lot about my grandfather. He passed away a couple years ago. He was um, 94 when he died. He was in kind of that World War II greatest generation. Um, And I just thought, by the time that he was 30, he had graduated from college, he had gotten married, he had uh, lived overseas for several years, he fought in World War II, he had started a career, and he had three children. Um, and so that's so different <laughs> from so many people who, like where people are now when they hit that 30-year-old mark. Um, for the sake of um, time, I'm not going to talk much about gender today in regards to this idea of delayed adolescence, um, but it does seem to be impacting men more than women, um, and there's also just some definite double standards that exist in the ways that parents tend to treat their adult sons versus their adult daughters. Happy to talk about that more in the discussion if you guys are interested in that, but I just wanted to flag that because I'm not really going to focus on that today. Um, but I do want to ask this question. Hey, come on. Um, does it matter? Does this even matter that such high numbers of young adults are still living with their parents? Like, who cares? Is it even a big deal? Um, I'm going to talk just a little bit about the social history of, of, of this phenomenon and how we got here. Um, so, as I said, this trend for young adults to remain with their parents for an extended period of time is a relatively new one. Uh, looking back through history, there's a big shift in the last two centuries, actually, in this country regarding the norms about children living at home. Uh, for many years, obviously, the norm was for um, the nuclear and the extended family to stay put. Uh, people married early and stayed rel- relatively close to their families um, of origin and their geographic place of birth. In agricultural communities, it was really vital um, to survival for young adults uh, to marry early, start having children quickly in order to have enough people to do the work that needed to be done for people to survive. Um, This often happened, kind of marriage and even childbirth happened in what we would refer to as the teenage years. Um, And marriage and childbearing was less about um, realizing our hopes and dreams for life and more about just doing the work of life for survival. Um, 
With the dawn of the industrial age, this changed. Most work moved out of the home, um, though initially individuals still stayed with their families because the income was needed in order for the entire family to survive. Um, in, the early 20th, in the early 20th century, a big factor that changed, that caused a shift here, was the invention of the automobile. Um, and that began to change the shape of the family. People were able to move further away from their families of origin. Uh, traditional rules of courting morphed into dating, um, where the development of romantic attachments between young people happened more and more in private as opposed to under the watchful eye of the parents out of the home. It was also the early 20th century that the American high school became more of the norm than the exception for teenagers. Um, there was a real shift towards privatization of work, dating, and education of teenagers and young adults. Um, and with that privatization came the birth of the cultural teenager, as we come to think of teenagers now. Um, adolescents have always existed, of course, um, but before this time, uh, young people were much more integrated into the adult world. Again, Dick spoke briefly about this, about kind of um, age, and stage, age and stage segregation, um, which is so prevalent in our culture now. That has not always been the case. Um, there were real given, uh, or adolescents were given real responsibilities and real work to do, um, and the expectations were quite high for their participation in family, economic, and community life. Uh, the idea of the teenager really came about as a way for corporations to make money. Um, they saw young people with this kind of newfound freedom with transportation and work, and they had income, um, as a very profitable target group. Um, teenagers became a separate group from adults with their own music, clothing, slang, and culture. And we're obviously still kind of in that place now. Um, the U.S. alone boasts a multi-million dollar industry centered around uh, teenagers and youth culture, um, telling them what to wear, what to drink, what to listen to, um, and definitely what to buy. In his book, An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, Roger Scruton says this, quote, This culture aims to present youth as the goal and fulfillment of human life, rather than a transitional phase, which must be cast off as an impediment once mature commitment calls, end quote. So this cultural obsession that we have right now with youth, for, every, for everyone, <laughs> for all of us, is, is playing a big role in this. Um, up until the 1930s, most people... Um, still did not attend college, and it wasn't until the 1960s that it was standard for most women, and it was really just middle and upper class women at that point, um, to attend some college or certificate training program. Now the scale has tipped, um, and more women than men are earning all types of higher education degrees across all levels. Um, kind of the standard in the U.S. right now is that teenagers enter college right on the heels of high school graduation and go right through bachelor's um, degree programs and sometimes master's or professional degrees um, in order to be more competitive um, in the ever-tightening U.S. job market. So these are real, they're real economic factors at play um, in the market here. Um, but with all of that education, as some of you know very, very personally and well, um, comes of a high price tag um, and for a lot of people a very high level of debt. And I um, 
as I was saying before we started, it's been a while since I was a student. And so I got on the internet and I went back to check what the current cost of my two alma maters are. Uh, one of them was a large state school that I attended uh, partially as an out-of-state student and then my last year as an in-state student. The in-state tuition for that school right now for tuition, room and board, food is $25,000 per year. Um, and the private school that I attended for graduate school is now upwards of $70,000 a year. So this is probably not news for some of you, but it was, uh, it was good for me to just go back and check those numbers. It's been a while. And of course, with just with the U.S. economy, the way that it is, certain jobs are harder to get, um, or there are jobs available, but there are jobs that don't pay a living wage, and um, and these are these are huge factors. And so, in many ways, it's no surprise that young adults are coming out of college, they're coming out of educational programs or training programs, um, and they are moving right back in with their parents, or they're staying in their parents' homes well into their 20s and 30s. For a lot of people, this is for financial reasons. In addition to educational and economic shifts, um, it's also important to look at the shift in parenting style that has happened um, in the last 20 years or so. Um, in her article from The Atlantic, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, uh, psychologist Lori Gottlieb recounts the various child-rearing philosophies that have evolved over the years, swinging between extremes of child-centered versus parent-centered philosophies, and they've gone back and forth. Experts agree, um, shocker of shockers, that we are now in a, in a child-centered phase of parenting. Um, many families now have both parents working outside of the home, again, for financial reasons, um, which compared with generations past, um, just drastically decreases the number of hours that parents spend with their children during a day and during a week. Um, with the pervasiveness of technology, um, it's not only the children who are left feeling fragmented and isolated. Um, parents, too, are suffering the personal and corporate losses of real friendships and community. This is something that just across the board we all are just experiencing less and less of. Um, more parents than ever are divorced, adding to their own sense of isolation, loneliness, and economic and emotional insecurity. Um, Citing a conversation with a family psychologist, Lori Gottlieb says this. Um, she's, excuse me, she's quoting the psychologist who said, many of us today don't really want our kids to leave because we rely on them in various ways to fill the emotional holes in our own lives. Um, so we really have this kind of issue at play from a couple different directions here. Um, and she goes on to describe um, <clears throat> the toll that is taken on families who spend less time together. Um, parents who only have an hour or two a day to spend with their, especially young children, are less likely to set limits or do something to make their children uncomfortable, even if it's for their child's own good. Um, they want their children to be happy. They want to have positive experiences together. Um, and more than anything, they want their children to like them and to have kind of a happy, comfortable family environment. Gottlieb notes that the goal of all of these philosophies is the same, to raise children who will grow into productive, happy adults. But she states that the problem that we face in our culture now is not so much a particular model of parenting, but that we have, that we have changed how we define and think about happiness. She says, <clears throat> quote, Nowadays, it's not enough to be happy. If you can be happier... 
the American dream and the pursuit of happiness have morphed from a quest for general contentment to the idea that you must be happy at all times in every way, end quote. Happiness is... Happiness as a byproduct of a life well-lived is wonderful, but having happiness as our primary goal typically ends in disaster. Um, Barry Schwartz, who's a social scientist at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, says this, quote, We want our kids to be happy living the life we envision for them. The banker who's happy. The surgeon who's happy. We're not so happy if our kids work at Walmart but show up each day with a smile on their faces. They're happy, but we're not. Even though we say what we want most for our kids is their happiness, and we'll do everything we can to help them achieve that, it's unclear where parental happiness ends and our children's happiness begins. Um, Much of the literature also points to this desire for happiness, our children's as well as our own, um, as the main driving force behind this breed of parents that are often called helicopter or hummingbird parents. In New England, we have a phrase, snowplow parents. Um, Some of you may have never seen that before, but parents who come in and just clear the way (laughs) and clear the way for their kids or hover or protect um, their kids. They swoop in at the the first sign of of distress or challenge. Um, They immediately come running after their child takes a tumble on the playground, they call the coach when their child doesn't make the team, and they insist that everyone gets a trophy so that no one's feelings are hurt. Um, they call the teacher when their child's test score isn't as high as they would like it to be, even when their children are in college. Um, I have a number of friends who are educators, uh, both at high school and college levels, who have story after story after story um, of parents who do their children's homework for them, write their papers, and call their professors and advisors to argue for a higher grade or a special privilege. I knew of a professor who's a friend of my dad's who had a policy that if, and he told his students on the first day, if your parent calls me about anything that has to do with your academic performance, I am automatically dropping you a letter grade. And he talks about having parents call, and the first thing he says, he says, It's nice to talk to you. Before you say anything to me, are you aware of the fact that if we have this conversation right now, I'm going to drop your child's letter grade? And usually the parents hang up the phone at that point. But but it's a hard it's a hard line to drop. In some schools, don't look on that kind kind of behavior kindly anyway. Um, One article I read talked about how many colleges and universities now employ parent escorts at freshman orientation and move-in day to hustle parents out and off of campus. Um, University of Vermont calls them parent bouncers. Um, But in turn, many young people today are also used to being in touch with their parents on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times per day via email and text and phone calls. Um, Parents can be quick to swoop in, but young people are also much more likely these days to turn to a parent for support or intervention at the slightest sign of distress instead of trying to work it out themselves first. Clinical psychologist Wendy Mogul says that this type of parental overinvestment is contributing to um, a generational narcissism that's hurting, um, that's hurting our kids. In a parent's effort to protect their children from pain and disappointment, in an effort to build self-esteem and make sure they're happy, the opposite is actually happening. Kids are becoming more narcissistic and less connected to the real world. She says this, quote, indicators of self-esteem have risen consistently since the 1980s among middle school, high school, and college students. 
but what starts off as healthy self-esteem can quickly morph into an inflated view of oneself, self-absorption and sense of entitlement that looks a lot like narcissism. In fact, rates of narcissism among college students have increased right along with self-esteem. However, rates of anxiety and depression have also risen in tandem with self-esteem, end quote. Um, most of the research now shows that measures of self-esteem are actually really poor indicators of how content a person will be in their life. Um, another psychologist, Jean Twinge, says that research shows that much better predictors of life fulfillment and success are perseverance, resiliency, and reality testing, qualities that people need so that they can navigate day-to-day -day life. Um, this is a very critical point. Children and adolescents who don't have the opportunity to screw up, to make mistakes, um, or problem solve, don't have the opportunity then to develop qualities of perseverance, resiliency, and reality testing. I love this quote. Twinge says, kids who always have problems solved for them believe that they don't know how to solve problems. And they're right, they don't. Um, it's only been in the past decade or so that research has shown that resiliency is something that can be learned and cultivated over time, um, and young people just really need opportunities to learn this skill. Um, and then one of the other just big factors here to close this part, um, impacting young adults today, I already mentioned this, is just the number of choices available to them. Um, more than any generation in the past, they have more choices about everything. And giving choices is this huge component of parenting philosophies right now. Um, but not all, but many people have the freedom to pursue the things that they're choosing um, versus being stuck in marriages or careers that they don't find fulfillment in. But the proliferation of choice has its downside as well. The research shows that more, that more choice is not always the best thing for finding fulfillment. Barry Schwartz says that research shows that people get more satisfaction from working hard at one thing and that those who always need to have choices and keep their options open get left behind. They can't bear the thought that saying yes to one interest and opportunity means saying no to everything else. So they spend years hoping that the perfect answer will emerge. What they don't understand is that they're looking for the perfect answer when they should be looking for the good enough answer. Um, we see this at Liberty all the time, all the time. People that come through and they're just absolutely paralyzed and we say, just pick something, just go do this for a year. And just the thought of doing that thing closes these doors or might leave, it, it is just, it is really, really crippling for not everybody, but for a number of people. Okay, I'm zooming along here. Now what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to the Bible. Um, what wisdom might it have to give us on the subject? The, the Bible does not talk specifically about, about leaving home and adolescence. Um, just another caveat, sometimes when I have a little more time um, and I speak on this topic, I spend a bit of time talking about um, uh, the commandment, what it means to honor father and mother. Um, and I also talk a little bit about some of the ways that Christian families actually have diff sometimes different views of families leaving home um, than secular culture does. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to touch on that, but I'm happy to pick that up in the discussion if anybody's interested in just talking more about that. So for the rest of our time together, I want to look at four different themes from the Bible um, that can just kind of inform our thoughts on this topic. I'm going low-tech today. I don't have an overhead. For those of you who just want to know where I'm going, the four themes are, can you remember? The first one is seasons, theme of seasons. Um, the next one is the theme of dominion the theme of participation, um, and the theme of struggle. So 
I'm going to just touch on those for the rest of our time. Uh, participation and then struggle is the last one. Okay, so um, to talk about uh, seasons is the first one. Um, the Bible is full of indication that our lives are and will be comprised of seasons. Um, there are times when we have to let go of the old to embrace the new. A couple of examples here. The first is the natural world. Um, our very understanding of seasons comes from the way that God has created the natural world. Different geographical areas experience the shift in annual seasons um, more significantly than others, um, but nevertheless, nothing in the natural world is static. Um, and we as human beings are very much part of the natural created world, which by its very nature does not allow things to stay the same forever. Our physical bodies grow and change and age over time in the same way that the rest of the natural world grows and ages. Um, we don't stay the same. And the Bible talks about the distinct value and importance of every stage of life, um, not only to the people um, within those stages, but to the whole community, to the whole church. My colleague, Marty Kai, she's the one Southboro worker who's not with us this weekend, um, Dick's wife. This is, this is one of her uh, hobby horses. She beats this drum all the time, as Dick referenced. Um, but... Uh, She's done some really helpful work on age, age segregation in the church and in culture and kind of spells out what scripture tells us is the value of each of these groups. I'm stealing a little bit of this from her work. I'm not going to talk about every stage. I'm going to spend a minute looking at what scripture tells us about the adolescent. Okay? Um, the word in the Bible um, that is used to mean youth or adolescent um, can be literally uh, translated to mean the one who shakes off which I think is really interesting, um, meaning that this is the stage of life where it is appropriate. <laughs> it is appropriate to start to shake free from a dependent relationship with parents. When people start talking about teenagers, it's often with an eye roll and a sigh, um, and this is the reason why. Teenagers typically are doing all sorts of things, some that are appalling to us, um, in their effort to start to shake free from the constraints and dependency on their parents. While it is right for parents and communities to be concerned with some of this behavior and watchful of this behavior, um, this is also what adolescents are supposed to be doing in this stage of life. And I want to point out here that from the biblical model, this, this happens, or at least begins to happen, during the teenage years, not the young adult years. And so the 20s, in many ways developmentally, are not, is not the time to start the shaking off. This is a process that's meant to start earlier um, in the developmental life cycle. And I do think it's a concern when we see teenagers who aren't doing this at all. It does make me wonder, um, because that is an, a developmentally appropriate thing to have happen. Um, <clears throat> this is also just some helpful thoughts from Marty's work. Um, the word in the New Testament that is most often translated into adult is this word teleos, um, which has to do with purpose. A telos is the, is the purpose of something. Um, and this is indicative of fulfilling the purpose, purpose that is meant for humans, which means entering into adulthood in order to fulfill God's purposes for us. Um, and I think this is a really significant connection to think of the posture of a teenager shaking off a dependence on earthly parents in order to pursue their purpose as human beings before their heavenly father, who is their ultimate parent. And that is what we're all called to. 
Um, this is something I also think that, that the church should be encouraging and equipping and helping teenagers to do. Not the, This isn't just the job of parents, but this is, this is a place where the church should really come alongside. Um, and then finally, just under this um, category of seasons, I just want to talk a little bit about um, the life of Jesus and, and specific things that we see um, in Scripture. Again, we see language all over the Bible indicating maturation, movement, and change as the norm. The prophet Joel says, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Um, and we need the visions of the young. Teenagers do not need to be like quarantined away in like the youth room where, I mean, we just tend to set the bar really, really low for them. Um, but the church, ha- um, excuse me, the Bible has quite a high view of people in this age um, and stage of life. Uh, several places in scripture, the Christian life is compared with an infant growing from a dependence on milk to taking in solid food as a more developed person. Um, in First Corinthians, Paul writes, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Um, and the writer of Hebrews is actually cha- really chastising the early church for not growing in maturity. Um, when he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, solid food. And that's, a, that's an indictment against them right there. Um, and then, of course, we see um, maturity development and changing seasons in the life of Jesus. Um, we don't get to see, you know, we just have snippets into the life of Jesus, but we still see that. In Luke 2, when Jesus was about 12, his family is celebrating the Passover feast in Jerusalem, but afterwards his parents traveled back home, and unbeknownst to them, he stayed behind in the temple. And the scripture says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Like, this is just such a tangible example here of, of Jesus shaking off a bit of the dependence on parents and moving towards his heavenly father. A few verses later it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So even Jesus, we had to see this, this maturation process in him. We know that he grew to study in the temple with rabbis. Um, he learned a practical skill, carpentry, and he worked for a number of years as a carpenter before beginning public ministry. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There's also a lot of space in between those, those extreme places in that statement. There's a lot of life and a lot of growth that has to happen there. Um, and so this idea of seasons is just really knit into the created order um, of, our, of our beings, of who we are. And it's for our own flourishing. God does not desire for us to wither or to stay stagnant. Um, but to yield good fruit, which really only comes um, with a movement forward um, to him, ultimately towards him. Okay, second kind of category I want to talk about is one of dominion. We talked about dominion a lot at Libri, and it's helpful for me to step outside of Libri and talk to other people who are like, what are you talking about? It's not a word that's thrown around quite as much, but but it's it's the idea that to have dominion means that we have control or authority over something. 
And as Christians, we, we recognize and we bow down um, to the dominion and the authority of Christ. But one of the central ways that we bear the image of God is that he has also given us dominion and agency. In Genesis 1, God demonstrates his own dominion during creation um, and then gives dominion to humans. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 2, we again see God specifically giving Adam dominion in the naming of the animals. It's important to point out here um, that it is very clear who the creator is. There's no confusion. Adam's not the creator. God is the creator. God formed all the animals, but he gave Adam the authority to name them. And with dominion comes a measure of authority. All through the Bible, we see examples of God's people being given dominion, the power to choose and exercise authority. Um, Some do it well, and some do it very poorly. And we as Christians are given the choice that comes with dominion as well. Deuteronomy says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. But it's a choice. We don't have to pick that up. We don't have to choose it. In Leviticus 26, God says, I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. There's a real dignity to our dominion. God gives his people the freedom to choose him or not, um, to have authority over their own lives. But in the New Testament, Jesus gives the freedom to choose him or not. Um, We see dominion that's given to the apostles. They're sent out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. They're acting in God's name, in Jesus' name. They're doing this through the power and the authority of Jesus, but they are also sent out to exercise their own dominion in the work. Um, And by exercising our God-given dominion, we become more human. We become more like him, more who we were created to be. The Bible is full as well of examples of young people who are exercising their own dominion and authority through God in their youth. Um, Earlier I mentioned the kind of the idea of like the juvenilization of America. There's a Christianity Today did an article a couple years ago titled The Juvenilization of the Church, (laughs) kind of how this is affecting us culturally and just how low the bar has been set um, as far as expectations for young people. Um, But in the Bible, we have so many models of young people doing real work and real important things that are critical for their families and communities. Um, That could be a lecture all on its own. But I'm just going to list a couple of examples. Samuel in the Old Testament Um, who was dedicated to the Lord in infancy um, and from the very beginning was trained in the temple. Uh, King David, who long before he was king, stepped out in courage um, and slayed Goliath by himself um, and and from a very young age was chosen to be king. David was quite young when that happened. Um, There's also Daniel, who who was a young man but was chosen to be a leader in the court of the Babylonian king. This was a pagan people whose culture and ways were not those of Daniel, yet he remained faithful to the Lord and exercised wisdom and discernment, navigating the place that God had put him. Um, In the New Testament, we have Mary, a very, very young girl, probably around 13, um, who was tasked with giving birth to the Messiah. Uh, We don't talk about Mary in the Protestant church very much, but she is an amazing example of what it means to say yes to the Lord in the face of 
um, circumstances that would tell you the opposite, that you shouldn't be doing that. She's an amazing testament of faith and courage in a very young person. Um, these, all of these characters and more are models for us of those who were not perfect. They did not do it perfect all the way through. They held fast to their faith in God and exercised their dominion in the world they were living in. Um, they didn't use their youth as an excuse, um, but saw the opportunities before them and stepped out uh, boldly. All right. all right, moving on to this idea of participation. Another theme in the Bible um, that comes up again and again and again in the Bible, it comes up again and again and again in the research on, that I did for this lecture, um, was this idea of passivity and paralysis of the current generation of adolescents and young adults. And again, this is something that we have really seen in our work at Libri. It's, the, it's this concerning idea that people choose nothing for fear of choosing the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. I want to say, too, I'm very sympathetic to this fear, <laughs> um, but it's a really unhelpful pattern. Um, many young people today have been raised to have the best of everything, um, and have been told that they can be anything, they can go anywhere, they can do anything. The world is their oyster. Um, and while on one level it's great to have that kind of support in cheerleading, um, it also results in this type of paralysis um, where young adults can't, t can't seem to take a step forward towards anything. Um, saying yes to one thing means saying no to other things. Um, and they kind of then can't stand the idea of not having choices because they've been told their whole life you have all these choices. Um, and walking through one door means there's a bunch of doors you don't walk through, and that can be really difficult. And so the choice then becomes non-choice, which is a choice, by the way, which turns into passivity or just waiting for the perfect spouse, job, living situation to arrive on the doorstep. Um, I have a friend whose mom used to always say, if you're waiting God for, for God to drop your husband on your doorstep, you're just going to end up married to the UPS man. Okay, so this idea of like we're just kind of <laughs> waiting. But this is so far, again, from what we see in the scriptures. In Southboro, we sometimes listen together at the beginning of each term to a lecture titled The Importance of Asking Questions by Ellis Potter, who's a former worker at the Swiss Library. And one of the things that he says in that lecture that just, I've heard it a million times, it just hits me every time he says it, um, is that for most people, there are two main questions that they are asking in regards to their posture towards their own lives. The first is, what can I get out of it? And the second is, what can I get out of? And I think that's really true in a lot of ways. So again, a very passive, pessimistic, entitled posture towards life in general. Um, and again, I found this to be a common attitude, not in everyone, of course, uh, but in many people. And this is so far from what we see in God's story. And we, as Christians, we are part of the story. <laughs> um, and time and time again, he pulls people out of this passivity into participation um, in his greater narrative. The God of the Bible is not a God who is far away, doing his thing up there somewhere while we do our thing down here. Some have believed he is not a clockmaker who has made the world, wound it up, set it in motion, and walked away. Um, he is a God who participates in what's happening in the world. Um, I think the most obvious place we see this is the incarnation. Um, the God of the universe came down and entered the world at a very specific point in history in order to live among us and engage in a very physical way. 
This is one of the most extraordinary claims of Christianity. Um, it's one of the greatest mysteries of Christianity. But we have it. There it is in the scripture. And so he calls us not to a passive observance of life all around us, but an active participation in our own lives and in what he's doing in the world. Um, again, all through scripture, time and time again, he's calling his people out of places of passivity and safety to greater participation of the work in his work. I think of the calling of Abraham, who was called away from his home to, he didn't know what, he had no idea. We have the end of the story. None of these characters have the end of the story. Abraham didn't know. The calling of David, again, away from tending sheep to being the king of a nation. The calling of the disciples to follow Jesus in his ministry, to step away from their families. The interaction with Saul on the Damascus Road, turning him a complete 180 degrees to become Paul, who would be so instrumental in building the early church. Um, One of my favorite examples of participation um, is when Jesus fed the 5,000. This is a very familiar story to us. But a couple years ago, I read it, and I just sort of saw it in a new way, where Jesus is, is there. There's all, he's been teaching all day. There's all these people. Um, it's coming on dinner time. The disciples say, send them away. They need to eat. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, I'll feed them. He says, you feed them. You feed them. And they're like, you know, I imagine trying to be there, and the disciples, she's like, what? Are you crazy? Um, and they come up with a few loaves and a few fish, fish from this little boy. And Jesus takes that food and he gives thanks. And I was struck by the fact that he lifts it up. He, he acknowledges, he gives thanks to God for the food. And he doesn't cast a spell. He doesn't wave a magic wand where all of that food multiplies and, and the disciples pass it out. The food does not multiply until the disciples start walking out. They have to step out. They probably think they look crazy with a few loaves and a few fishes, but it's as they step out, as they trust Jesus and they step out, that the miracle happens. And I just think, how much more powerful, if that were me, how much more powerful would it have been for them? It's one thing to kind of stand on the side, watch Jesus do his thing, and then pick up the bread and go. Right, but how much more powerful that for them, um, and and how they would have kind of learned in deep, deep soul ways what it means to trust God and to believe in the miracles of God. I love that story. I have, I, for years, I'm feeding the five thousand, um, and I just now I just have a, just a deeper appreciation for that story, and I think it's an amazing example for us. And I think that type of knowing and learning. Um, is expansive. It expands us. It makes us larger in a way. Um, it wasn't just for the disciples' edific- individual edification. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what would be required of the disciples in the days ahead. During his betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and all that would come after that in the early church, he knew that they needed this kind of knowledge to be equipped, not just to be told something, but they needed to get their hands dirty. They really needed to step out in that. We, Dick mentioned this morning, we have, um, when students come to Libri, they spend part of their day working. Um, We do a lot of dishes, we wash a lot of clothes, we weed a lot of gardens, we do all kinds of things at Libri. A couple years ago, we built a little cabin for Dick. Um, We kicked him out of his office, and so he needed a new office. And so we built a little cabin on our property, and we were really blessed that summer to have two um, professional carpenters who were friends of Labrie who had come through the area, and they said, we'll do this. If you'll feed us and put us up for a month, 
we'll get this thing built for you. And so every day they had a team of students working with them to help build this little cabin. Uh, this, our students, and none of them had any experience doing this. But it was really amazing to watch David and Isaac, who were um, the carpenters doing this, because they had the students come in and, like, gave them real work to do. Isaac said, this is what I need you to do. You measure it this way, you do this, you do this. Now go do it. And it was really interesting just to hear some comments of the students um, who they were like, like, Isaac trusted me to do that. Like he, like, he didn't stand over my shoulder and watch me. He, I knew I could ask him questions, but, like, he was just like, this is the thing. Now go do it. And I knew that I needed to do it, and I knew that I needed to do it well so that this roof wouldn't fall in on Dick's head, you know. Um, but it was, such a, it was a really cool thing to watch um, their ability to bring these very untrained young people in to participate in something really cool and exciting that just you could just sort of see in their bodies and their faces the excitement of that. And God doesn't, that's what he does. He doesn't call us out just to leave us floundering um, on our own, but he calls us out and then he equips us to do so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. In the example of the feeding of the 5,000, all the baskets, excuse me, all the people were fed to their fill and there were 12 basketfuls left over. Um, God does immeasurably more. Um, Bounty is part of his story. And when we step out of comfortable places and participate in this work, he meets us there. Um, All right, finally, I just want to talk about this last theme here, which is just a general theme of struggle. Um, This is where I think we see the most significant difference between the Christian faith and this cultural idea of, I just want my children to be happy. Um, kind of mantra, that mantra of current parenting philosophies, um, or even adults using happiness as the measuring stick for their own lives. Um, The biblical narrative is just not about happiness. It's just not. It is about sanctification. It is about contentment and joy and peace. But unfortunately, in some parts of the church, there is a strand of thought that the Christian life should be easy. If you have Jesus, you're good. Um, that God is in the business of doling out gifts to people who love and believe in him, like Santa Claus on Christmas. And most of us want an easy life. I mean, I do. I'll say that. (laughs) I do. I would love to have an easy life. Um, But the gospel is what it is because of the fall, because there is sin in the world. We are not okay. The world we live in is not okay. That's why we're talking about Jesus 2,000 years later is because the world we live in is not okay, and it is not easy, and it is not happy. Um, at Labrie, we often talk about living life under the shadow of the fall, something that, that Francis Schaeffer talked about a lot, and what that means for us. And part of what that means is that we will have pain and disappointment and fear um, and discouragement and struggle. Um, and that's just a human story, whether we like it or not. And again, the Bible is full of stories. The Israelites in the desert, the mourning of David, over his sin and the loss of his son, um, the cries and moanings of Hannah over her empty womb, um, the confusion and chaos of the disciples always, um, Jesus' temptation in the desert, and, of course, his betrayal and crucifixion on the cross, um, martyrdom of most of the disciples. We cannot read the Bible and believe that our lives will be without struggle because it's just naive. But, of course, sin does not have the final say. We have every reason to look forward in hope Um, However, that doesn't mean that the path to glory will not have its own share of struggles. Um, And when we teach children that life is without struggles, when when the snowplow parents come in and plow the snow for them, um, we protect them too much from them. We're really doing them a disservice. 
um, the kids in generations who've been kind of all but wrapped in bubble wrap <clears throat> to protect them from the perils of the world um, just won't have the skills that they need to cope with the trials of life. Um, and the trials will come. Um, and this, we spend a lot of time talking to people at the Brie who have been hit by a wave. They have been knocked down, um, and they are disoriented, and they are confused, and they don't even know how to stand up again. Those are the conversations we have most of the time, I would say, with people. Um, many of the young adults I meet at Libri are wary of striking out on their own because they fear it will be too hard, and they are right. <laughs> it will be hard. Um, but it is in the struggles that we see the beauty and the victory as well. Um, something that has been very helpful to me on this subject um, is a passage from Psalm 18. And I'll read this. Um, it says, uh, the whole thing is a beautiful psalm, but just this particular part. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand in the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. Um, my pastor, former pastor at my church, did a sermon on this one time, and he pointed out that during our struggles, what we want and often pray for is the latter, for God to broaden our paths, for the snowplow to come through, for God to broaden our paths so that we can easily go um, around the obstacle that is in our way or just have the obstacle removed altogether. And sometimes this is what he does. He does do this sometimes. But more often than not, much more often than not, what we get is the former. He makes our feet like the feet of the deer so that we may stand in the heights. Um, we were at Swiss Labrie in April for our annual um, members meeting that we do. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been at Swiss Labrie, but it is plastered onto the side of a mountain in the, in the Swiss Alps. And I went for a short walk after lunch one day, and you can't really walk because you're just walking straight uphill. But I was on a little road that runs behind the chalet, and it was, I mean, just very steep, this just steep, grassy hill. And there were two deer up there. And I just stood there and watched them, and I thought about this passage. And just thinking about, um, like, how do those animals live here? I mean, they're like almost vertical, you know? They're, they walk on four legs, but their, their, their bodies are almost vertical. And just thinking, like, God has equipped them. Um, he has um, given them feet that enable them to stand in the heights. Um, and I was just really thankful for that, that tangible image in that moment. But God does that for us, too. Um, he doesn't keep us from trial and struggle, but he equips us um, in our own bodies with his power and strength um, to make the way over the mountain. And life can be hard, very hard at times. I'm sure many of you have very hard things you've been through. Um, in your lives, but the fear of struggle and the just avoidance of struggle um, is one of the things that most kind of saddens me and concerns me um, when I hear our students at Libri using that as their reason for not moving away from home, for not taking a risk, for not making a choice. It certainly would be much easier to stay home and watch TV. Um, and I have those days myself. <laughs> there are days where that is the appropriate thing to do. Um, but courage is not the absence of fear. It is stepping forward in spite of it um, and expecting Jesus to meet us there, which he does. Just to, I'm going to stop here. 
Um, but just to, just to wrap up, I, I, I don't know, I hope this is helpful you, for you, again, these sort of biblical themes of seasons, dominion, participation, struggle. Hopefully they can give you kind of some kind of framework uh, for the life that Jesus has called us all to. Um, if you are a young adult in here um, who's not yet made the break from home, um, or if you're a parent whose adult child um, is still living at home, um, I think it's wise to be mindful of our call as Christians ultimately to Christ um, and to a dependency on him. I love in, um, at the very, or near the end of the last battle, just the final installment in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, Aslan is calling the children further up and further in. Um, I love this. I love that phrase. This is the calling out. This is the more um, that God is, is calling it. You too, it's calling me too, he's calling all of us too. Um, there will be struggle, but Jesus has told us that his power is made perfect in weakness. Um, I am very encouraged by the fact um, that we worship a God with scars on his hands. Um, we do not walk anywhere, um, your children will not walk anywhere that Christ has not walked before. And those are the same hands that he will use to usher us into glory. Um, and so he has, he has gone before us, and he has, um, he has paved the way for us, and, and we don't need to be afraid. Life is hard. It is struggle. It sucks sometimes, but we don't need to be afraid. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.